Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hey guys. Well, you know, as we're, uh, as I was looking out the window just now, as the intensity of the storm is increasing, I know it was a good idea just to go on live stream and to, uh, to gather at home, and yet being the one-year anniversary, at least, of the pandemic impacting the church, being in an empty room, it first of all, it reminds me of the many people that I miss, people that even so far we haven't had the chance to see you, and I want you to know that we love you. We're hoping to see you soon, and I know for each one of you that means different things, different milestones to get there, but but know that uh, we remember you, we think of you, we pray for you, we miss you. Seeing this empty room, um, it reminds me really of the challenges that we've been through in this year. And I was thinking this morning as I was, I got here early because I wanted to make sure my little Toyota Corolla could get through the snow, and, and thankfully it did an amazing job. Hopefully it can get back home I'm not sure if that's going to work out quite as well, but uh, as I was coming here um, and thinking about this morning, one of the things that came to me as I was preparing and just praying this morning is that I don't want to miss out in a sense of, of, I want to go to this new normal that we have. I want to be there. I want to be there today, but I don't want to, to get there in a way that causes me to forget the things that God's taught me this year. That I think during this year, God has taught us a great deal about ourselves. I think about what it means to be the church, what it means to be together. I think he's reminded us of those things that are really important to us, how important it is to gather in community, to see one another, to support one another. And there's a sense in which as we come out of this season, it's beautiful today just simply to be at home and to ask the Lord to say, God, what are the things that in this year I don't want to miss out on? What have you taught me that in moving to this new normal, I I don't want to walk away unchanged. God, what are you teaching me? And I think it's it's so helpful for me that this Sunday we're going to be in Psalm 139. This beautiful picture of David's openness to God and God's relationship to David, how deeply God knew David. And yet in God's knowledge of David, David comes to understand himself better. That there's a sense in which... We can know God, but we truly can't know the depths of God till we start to understand the depths of ourselves and the way that God wants to change us and how he works through us. And that in knowing God, we also have to know ourselves. And in Psalm 139, these two realities of the greatness of God, his presence, his knowledge, his power, is also brought right alongside the intimacy of David's realization of who he is of how God has intersected with him throughout his life, how God has cared for him, loved him, watched over him, directed him, and changed him. And so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to jump into Psalm 139 as we jump into this passage and really ask that question, God, what is it in this year that you want to ensure that as we walk into this new season of life, as Easter is coming, as we're preparing for the reality of Christ's resurrection I want to ensure that I remember these things and I don't walk away from this year unchanged. 
I'm hoping from Psalm 139, God is going to reveal that to us. So let's jump in together. Psalm 139, a Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. And even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge, it's, it's too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. And so where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows them very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them. If I would, I would count them. They are more than the sands on the sea. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O man of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. And I count them as my enemies. And so, search me, O God. Know my thoughts. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, as we gather on this Sunday, gather in our homes, whether it's on a phone or device, on television, we still gather in your presence. And what unites us it's not just that we are physically together. What unites us is that we, we kneel under the banner of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize and we know that you're with us. And so as David said, search us, know our hearts, know our thoughts. Father, if there are ways that need to change in us, things that need to be let go, anxieties that need to pass, angers that need to be set aside, Father, would you show us in the stillness of this storm, in the quietness of this hour, Holy Spirit, reveal the Father to us. 
and lead us in the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Psalm 39, there are four divisions to this psalm. In verses 1 through 6, David is surrounded by the reality of God's knowledge, that God knows him deeply. And then in verses 7 through 12, he's surrounded with the reality of God's presence, that God is with him. So first, God knows him. God knows him deeply, verses 1 through 6. Verses 7 through 12, that God is with him, closer to him than he could possibly imagine. And then verses 13 through 18 is the reality of God's power, God's purpose in his life. There there isn't a day, a moment, an hour where God has not been at work in David's life, leading him in the direction that God wanted him to go. And then finally, in verses 19 through 24, it's this idea of being surrounded by God's holiness. So throughout this psalm is the image that God surrounds us. His knowledge surrounds us, verses 1 through 6. His presence surround us, verses 7 through 12. His purpose and power surround us, verses 13 through 18. And then finally, which should draw us to our knees in humility and submission and in worship, his holiness surrounds us, verses 19 through 24. And see, that with all of this together should lead us to a place of change. And so as we walk through this passage, I hope you'll begin to sense the nearness of God's knowledge, his presence, his power, and his holiness. So let's jump in back into verse 1 as David begins to get this image and this idea that he is surrounded by the knowledge of God. And he says, O Lord, you have already searched me and you know me. And when it says that God searches David and he knows him, it's not that God knows something about David, that he knows some facts, his birthday, his day of his birth, or what his favorite color is, or his favorite flavor of ice cream rather it's that God intimately has searched David's heart and he knows about David the word knowledge here or the word know is the same word that Adam might express in knowing Eve it's a word of intimacy and connection and when it says that the Lord has searched us that word search really means to dig to comprehend that God has gotten to the depths of David's psyche, his emotions, his mind, his thoughts, all of that, and God truly understands who David is. And then what David starts to do from verse one is he takes the polarities or the extremes of what that means. And he says, God, these are the extremes to which you have known me. Watch this beginning in verse two. He says, God, you know me, you know when I sit down and you also know when I rise up. You know when I am passive, you know when I'm active. You discern my thoughts from afar. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. God, you know my thoughts. You know my inside. You know my emotions, my experiences. But you also know my behavior. You know my actions. There's nothing internally or externally that's hidden from you. And then in verse 4, he goes a step further and he says, even before a word is on my tongue, I haven't even said it, and yet behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows our words before we speak them. David is overwhelmed by being surrounded by the knowledge of God. And as we think of God's knowledge, I want to pause for just a moment. I think sometimes the idea we have of God's knowledge is that God sees what is going to happen before it happens. That God has foreknowledge. He knows what's coming. And it's not simply that David is saying, God, hey, you know what's going to come because you can see into the future. He's saying, God, you're in the future. 
you're already there. You're there when that word is spoken that I haven't even thought of yet. You're in my thoughts. You're in my past. You're in my present. You're in my future. See, God doesn't relate to time the way that we relate to time. No, God is in the past, present, and future simultaneously in all places, which means that God fully knows you. See, we forget the past. Now, we remember certain things about the past, and that often influences our present. We remember the bad things, the difficult things. We stop trusting. We stop pushing towards others in intimacy. We stop addressing issues in our life because, see, our relationship to the past is kind of a broken relationship. We try to forget it, but, see, God knows your past. And see, as God looks at you, as he looks at history, he sees your past, he's in your present, but he's also just as intimately in your future as he is in the present. God sees all three simultaneously. Now, what does that look like? It's hard for us to comprehend. I heard one person describe it this way, that you imagine God's relationship to time like a river. And there are different boats on that river, and this river has all these bends and curves, so the boats can't see one another, but one boat is in the past, One is in the present and one is in the future. And see, God is high and lofty. He's up on the top of the mountain. He's looking down and he sees the past, the present, and the future. He sees them all together as once, which means that God truly knows us. He doesn't forget our past. He knows us in the present, but he also knows the challenges that are going to come in the future, which means there's a fullness of God's knowledge of us that goes so much deeper than we even know ourselves So we have to allow him through humility to reveal that knowledge to us that, God, you know us so well, and yet you still love us. And that's where he says in verse 5, he goes, and so you hem me in. And the idea of hemming in is to protect that which is valuable. Because God loves us and he cares for us, he hems us in both from behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Verse 6, such knowledge, that reality, it's too wonderful for me. It's too great. I cannot attain it. Now, there's two ways to think of verse 6. You have to realize that word wonderful in the Hebrew sentence is the first word of that sentence. So it starts off wonderful. It's too much for me to comprehend. It's in the emphatic position, which means what David is saying is he's exclaiming wonderful, overwhelming. It's too much. It's too much in the sense that On his bad days, when David felt alone, it was too much. It was so much of comfort to know that God knew him, that he was with him, that he cared for him. But see, David's life wasn't just about intimacy with God. It was also, in many ways, about rebellion. As we think of David's life, it starts off in obscurity. David is just simply a shepherd out in a field, and his father doesn't even think of him. Because see, when this prophet Samuel shows up, all the brothers get in line except for David. David is forgotten, and it takes the word of the prophet to say, there may be another brother. Is there someone else? And Jesse, David's father, says, well, I could go get David. See, for David in that moment when he was rejected and he was forgotten, the idea of God's knowledge was a deep comfort that God knew him and understood him. And see, that wasn't the only moment in David's life. It wasn't just that God knew him in the quiet days. See, God also knew him in the depths of his rebellion. God knew him in times in which he used his power to abuse others. When he, in a sense, raped Bathsheba. When he kills Uriah. In those moments, the wonderful idea of God's knowledge of him was not a comfort, it was a threat. It was too overwhelming. God, you know too much about me. How can I escape 
your presence. And in fact, in verse 7, there's a sense in which that's what he begins to say. That on the one hand, God surrounds us with his knowledge. But then in this next section, in verses 7 through 12, God surrounds us with his presence. And so David, in verse 7, asking that question, how can I escape your presence? Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? You may remember at this point the story of Jonah. Jonah was someone likewise called by God, filled with the Spirit, and yet what God had called Jonah to do, Jonah sought to flee from. And it says, I think in Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah sought to flee from the presence of God. That on the one hand for David, God's presence was a comfort. At other times, God's presence was a threat. There was this dual relationship. It's wonderful that you comfort me when I feel alone, and yet when I realize the depth of your knowledge and your presence in my rebellion... There's a sense of threat, a sense of terror. Where shall I flee from your presence? And then he begins to describe these polarities. I could ascend to the heavens, verse 8. But I realize, God, you're also there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're also there. I can go to the stars. I can go to the clouds, and yet you're there. And Sheol is the place of death, which the ancients thought was in the earth. So I can descend to the bottom, and guess what? You're there. I go to the heights, you're there. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, which means if I go to the furthest east I could possibly go, you're there. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, which for David that meant to go to the west, he's still there. Verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me, meaning God will direct me, whether it's in the heavens or in the earth. Whether it's to the east or the west, your right hand shall uphold me, you protect me. Verse 11, and surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be as night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. No matter where I go, I cannot escape your presence. Now, again, that can be comforting, or it can also be in some ways frightening. That when we're in rebellion against God, we can't escape his presence. There's no place we can go where God is not aware of what we're doing. He's, he's with us. He's with us in our darkest hours. He's with us in our best days. And David is struggling with this, and yet he says in verse 10, your hand is still directing me. You're still protecting me. You're still guiding me. Whether I was a brute beast or my heart was right with you, God, this reality is around me at all times. And so David, I think when we read Psalm 39, we often think that this is a very positive psalm, which it is, but it describes both David's rebellion and his obedience. It describes his worship and yet his rejection of worship. That David is saying, God, you're with me. Your presence is surrounding me. You've covered me. You know me. And in fact, it kind of reminds me of Romans chapter 8, that great passage where Jesus, Paul really reflecting on Jesus, reminds us that For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no place where God's knowledge or his presence does not reach. So on the one hand, David is surrounded by the knowledge of God. He's surrounded by the presence of God. And then in verses 13 through 18, he's surrounded by the purposes and the power of God. Watch this. 
He goes on to say that we, in a sense, are God's idea, for God formed us. Verse 13, in our inward parts, he knitted us together in our mother's womb. And the idea of knitted is to create. You may think of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, for we are God's workmanship. We are, in fact, in the Greek, the word poema. We are God's poetry, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That God has knitted us together. You may think of the psalmist that says, we are created a little bit lower than the heavenly beings, yet we are crowned with glory and with honor. That God has created us in such a way that his creativity is seen through us. And that causes David in verse 14 to burst out in thankful gratitude and praise. He says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows them full well. Verse 15, my frame, meaning my skeleton, wasn't hidden from you. When I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Now, the depths of the earth for David is actually a description of his mother's womb. He's describing that process of of conception, of the division of cells, of this picture of an embryo from the beginning of time, Father, Even in the darkest and the secret of places, you were at work. You had a purpose for me. Verse 16, your eyes, they saw me at that moment, my unformed substance. And in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when I was yet, when, when as yet, there was none of them. David's saying, God, you knew me from the beginning. You knew me from conception. You knew me in my mother's wombs in the depths of the earth. You knew me to the end of my life before I had died. Every single day, Father, you sustained me. You created me. You you guided me. You formed me. Father, you know me. Which David is saying there is a purpose to our life. There is nothing in our life that is escaping God's hands, that our life has purpose. From the moment of conception to the moment of death and even beyond that. Because he's going to say, I'm going to awake. I'm going I'm to fall asleep even past death. God, your plan for me isn't, isn't stalled by death or disease or brokenness. God, you're at work in my life. These things are just too wonderful for me. See, in this passage, we have this idea of the value of human life. See, why is it that as as those that are created in the image of God and love Jesus and follow Jesus, why is it that we believe that life begins at conception? Why do we fight for the unborn? Because, see, David is saying, God, you knew me, and the knowledge that God had of David as an embryo was the knowledge of intimacy. It's not the knowledge of simply knowing that he will one day exist. No, David is saying, God, you are with me. You were around me. Your power, your presence surrounded me, that life begins at conception, and therefore... We must defend the unborn. We must value life. Life from the beginning. We stand for the value of life. But see that life, it doesn't just start there, though it begins at at birth or conception. We also value life throughout life. That David's saying that every one of my days, God, you knew them. You were present in them, which means we don't determine the day of our birth. We don't determine the day of our death. We're not in control of our life. Our life belongs to God. And so whether it's abortion or euthanasia, whatever issue it is, we value life and we move out into the world in a way that, that's, that shows that the life is valuable to God and we want to 
engage in the world in a way that shows the value of life. And so we want to fight for the unborn, but we also want to fight for the born. You know, God identifies injustice with poverty. And so where there is injustice, we have to address it. Where there is racism, we have to address it. Where there are those whose bodies are broken, we should address it. Where there, there are those who are hungry, we should address it. The church should be on the forefront of meeting the needs of people in the world. Why? Because God values life. And that should cause us the question, ever taking a life. You know, the church has disagreed for, for centuries, really, over the question of capital punishment. But we should never, at any time, take a life and think that this is just normal. This is, it should cause us to pause and say, no, this, this life is valuable to God. God alone holds the value of life in his hand. And as Christians, we have to hold up that value before the world, not just in the unborn, but in all of life. We need to have a full vision of what life means. Is that how the world sees us? Is those that truly value life. David sees it and he says, God, listen, from the beginning to the end, you were watching over me. Your knowledge was too great for me. Your presence was overpowering me and my life had purpose. And he begins to reflect on this in verse 17 and he says, how precious are your thoughts. Are your thoughts, oh God, how vast the sum of them. If I could count them, they would be more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Now realize, when he says, God, how wonderful or how precious are your thoughts, he's not saying, God, how precious are all your thoughts, but rather he's saying, how precious are your thoughts about me? David's reflecting on the depths to which God is connected to him. God is thinking about him. It's too vast. It's too great. It's too overwhelming. I cannot even count. Do you realize how much God thinks of us? How much his mind is captivated by us, cares about us, intimately knows what's going on. David's opening up a vision of how God sees us, and it's much greater than probably you and I could even imagine. God, how vast are your thoughts? If I could count them, they would be like the sand on the beaches. I couldn't, I couldn't come close to numbering them. And yet he says at the end of verse 18, this phrase, I awake and I'm still with you. Now, when David says, I awake, he's not saying I took a nap and then I got up and I realized that God was still with me. No, in the language of the Old Testament, to sleep means to die. That God, your knowledge and your purpose and your power and your presence, it even crosses through death. That when I am asleep and then I awaken. So that means some picture of life after death. It could be an image of resurrection. God, you're also there. Your purpose is for me, and your presence and your plan, it extends beyond death. It's in life, and it's in death. This is a vast picture of the knowledge that God has of David. And see, what David's doing is he's meditating, he's reflecting, he's worshiping. But it's also beginning, in a sense, to settle on him. I don't know if you notice the great change that happens in verse 19, and it's, in some ways it causes some of us to recoil. Because David starts to get real serious. He begins to get angry. Because see, as he realizes the knowledge of God and the presence of God and the power of God and the purpose of God, he says, God, the world's a mess. And though you know me, God, you know what's, what's happening to me. And though you're with me, God, you care about what I'm experiencing. And though you have a purpose for me, God, I can't line up my experiences with what you want for me. David's coming to a place, a struggle. He's 
sees God's knowledge, he sees God's power, he sees God's presence, now he's being surrounded by God's holiness and the conflicts within him are beginning to come forth. Here's the fourth section where David realizes he's surrounded by God's holiness. Watch what he says, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. For they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. David, you can't say that. I count them my enemies. Doesn't that cause you for a moment to say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say something like, love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. The language that David is using is the language of someone who has experienced injustice. In the language of the songs, it's called the um, impeccatory psalms. It's the idea that David sees the injustice in the world, and because of his passion for God, his love for God, his zeal for God, he wants to see that injustice addressed. And the injustice that David's describing is not just out there somewhere, it's happening to him and his community. He's seeing the violence of bloodthirsty men hurting those that he loves. And he's crying out to God and saying, God, this is wrong. Your knowledge is pervasive. Your presence is pervasive. This shouldn't be happening. And he's crying out to God. But realize when he says, I hate those who hate you, David is not taking vengeance against them. He's lifting up his his concern in God's presence. He's saying, God, address it. Deal with it. It's the same kind of language, actually, that Jesus used In John chapter 2, you may remember when Jesus went to the temple and he saw how God's temple was used not for his worship but rather for for man's gain and he turns over the tables. And in John chapter 2, we discover why did Jesus do that and he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, zeal for God's house or zeal for God drove me. And see, that's what David's expressing. It's a passion and love for God that as you see injustice in the world, it causes you to cry out to God and say, God, you have to address these things. It may even come out as anger, hopefully a righteous anger, but it is one that David says, God, I want to see these things addressed. As I look out into the world, I'm having a hard time reconciling your knowledge and your power and your purpose with what I see. God, would you address the brokenness and the wickedness in life. David is in a place of conflict. But notice, as we've gone through this series, he's in a place of conflict in the presence of God. This is a prayer. He's not saying this to his friends or his neighbors. He's saying this and saying, God, would you address these things? Would you address these people? Lord, these are the people who have hurt me, who are against me. And he's saying it in the intimacy of God's presence. And see, that's what causes this dramatic change. Do you notice where he says, I hate those who hate you, And then suddenly, in verse 23, there's something that shifts in David. He's not just looking at the evil outside. He's looking at the evil inside. He's not just seeing the injustice done to him. He's seeing the injustice that he does. And he says in verse 23, God, search me. Though I hate those who hate you, though I'm calling for justice, God, I realize that it's got to start with me. Search me. Know my heart. Test me, try me, examine me, know my thoughts. Verse 24, and see if there's anything that's, that's offensive, that's grievous in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. 
What is David saying, God, I know the injustice in the world, but I don't know the injustice in my own heart. And before I can go out and address my enemies, Lord, I need you to first search my heart. You know, we just talked for a moment just about some pretty important subjects. Addressing issues like abortion. Issues about the value of life, protecting the unborn, protecting the born, those who are alive. These are issues when it comes to racism, abortion, injustice, poverty. These are issues that in this year, I think all of us have been incredibly passionate about. And God cares for every single one. God cares for the injustice that he sees in the world. And see, we also care. And I've had conversations with you, and I know you care. And as a church, we care. We want to be active and involved in the world. We want to step out in ways that reveal God's generosity, his kindness, his goodness. We want to stand up and protect those who are being mistreated and undervalued. We want to stand in those places, but we cannot stand in those places unless we've allowed God to search our heart. Because see, if we just say, hey, the problem's out there in the world, it's the injustice, I hate those who hate you, but we don't stop and go, wait a minute, what am I saying? God, the injustice I see in the world is also the injustice you see in me. Because remember how I said his knowledge, it surrounds him and his presence surrounds him and his purpose surrounds him. And that's a great comfort when you feel alone or you're hurt or you're rejected. But see, David also knew rebellion. He knew sin. He knew brokenness. He knew, he knew not caring about what cared, God cared about. And see, in those moments, God's knowledge and God's presence, it was threatening. And so David had this dual relationship with the presence of God. It was comforting at times. It was threatening at times. And so as he's looking at the brokenness of the world, he says, God, the brokenness that's in the world is also the brokenness that's in me. And before I can go out and address the world, before I can know who I am and go out and show who you are, Lord, you have to change the brokenness in me. David comes to this place of realization that, God, you know me so that you can change me. And in changing me, you want to change me so that I can go out and bring that same agent of change and knowledge and presence and power to a world that desperately needs to know you. You know, there's a passage in Matthew chapter 7 that if there is one passage that I think is most forgotten by the church, at least for right now, it's Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, here's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus is not saying, as people sometimes commonly believe, never make a judgment or never evaluate someone's behavior. No, he's not saying that. Just like David, Jesus is saying there is injustice in the world and we have to call it out. But do not judge someone in a way that you yourself would not also want to be judged. Are you using standards for others that you're not applying to yourself? And let's start with marriage. Are you using standards in your marriage that you're not applying to yourself? Are you applying standards to one person, but are you also applying that standard to yourself? It's saying, not just simply do not judge, but be careful the manner in which you judge. Are you being honest? That's what David's saying in, in Psalm 39. God, search me and know me. I know that the brokenness that I'm angry about and that's hurting me in the world, I see it in myself and I want to change. And so what's the solution? Jesus says in verse 3, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how do you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? 
you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do you realize you are fearfully and wonderfully made? God has created you as you are. He knows your faults. He knows your giftings. He has created you as a workmanship. But are you allowing God to search and know your heart? I think so often what we try to do is just simply pretend. We pretend to have a deep relationship with God because that's what we're supposed to do in the church. But do we truly allow God to know us that in our moments of anger, like David, did you notice how quickly, and I don't know how much time had passed between those verses, but you notice how quickly his anger turned to reflection, his judgment turned to humility, that as he's courageous towards the evil in the world, he also needs to be courageous towards God's mercy in him. And see that before we address the brokenness in the world, David's saying, God, you've got to address the brokenness in us. And that's what the psalm is about. It's about God knowing us and us seeing ourselves as God sees us. Do you know that you're beautifully and wonderfully made? So, so many of us are, I think, living up to the standards of the world. We're trying to attain that which the world says we should have, whether it's physical beauty, a perfect family, the wealth, the success, whatever it looks like, a big church, not empty <laughs> on a Sunday morning. We have all these, these, these things that we're trying to live up to but do you know yourself as God knows you? Do you see yourself as God sees you? That even in your rebellion, he's with you. Even when we hide in the darkness, he's with us. Even when we run for him like Jonah or from David, like David, he chases after us. And in chasing after us, he, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't come in to destroy, but to redeem and to heal, not to condemn, but to save. That our God is a God that searches us and knows us and he wants to change us, but we have to be willing to be honest before him. David says, God, you know me deeply and yet you haven't rejected me. That's what causes him to wonder. David's thinking, how is that possible? How can you know my, my sinful thoughts and, and my brokenness and not reject me? And he's wondering, and that's what's causing him to have all this joy and yet humility and yet terror is he's wondering, God, how can you be both things? How can you be near and yet holy? And, and I think David still had this confidence that God could be that, and yet we know how it's possible. Because see, through Jesus Christ, we recognize that he's taken upon himself the very absence of God's presence that we deserve. That God knew Jesus perfectly, that Jesus, the Father, and the Son, they're one. There was a perfect intimacy, a perfect knowledge between Jesus and the Father. They they were connected to one another. They were one in heart and mind and thought and action. And yet what happened on the cross is that Jesus was separated. He truly experienced the lack of God's presence. He was cut off so that our brokenness, our sin might be atoned for. It might be reconciled. It might be forgiven through his death and through his resurrection. We might have this newness of life that allows us to dwell in the face and the presence of God, knowing the fullness, that he sees the fullness of our rebellion, he doesn't reject us, but in that place of intimacy, he begins to change us because he knows the depths of our fears and our brokenness, and yet he loves us and he longs to change us. Church, are we learning to be honest with God? Hey, as we reflect on this day, I hope you have a fantastic day. Get outside, enjoy some of this, this weather as it's coming down. 
But let's not fail to grasp what God has taught us in this year. Let's not walk away from this year to this hope of a new normal, but not be a different person to engage in the world in a way that reminds us that God knows us completely. He's with us entirely. His purposes will not be stopped, and yet he wants to change us. Let's spend that time reflecting on what God wants to change in our life, and then let's begin to ask him, God, what needs to change in me? Try me and search me so that as I go out to the world, Father, I go out in a way that truly reflects who you are. Hey, let me pray for you.